Well, friends, welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast. My name is Mike Goldsworthy, and we are creating space to have conversations where we are reimagining the church for our current moment. And I am really excited for our conversation today. I get to introduce you to a friend of mine, Blaine Hogan, and I'll tell you about Blaine in a second when we start the interview. But one of the things I got thinking about was uh, later on in the interview, Blaine shares a bit about a small gathering uh, that he was a part of that we'd put together. And I got to thinking that that may spark some curiosity for some of you. And so if it does, I want to let you know, while I am not great at regularly putting out a newsletter, uh, when I put together different kinds of gatherings, I am usually pretty good about at least one time putting those out on that newsletter. And so if, um, if you hear Blaine talking about that and you're like, how do I get to show up at something like that? Go to MikeGoldsworthy.com, subscribe to my newsletter, and when I put together um, different kinds of gatherings, I usually try to put out something on there at least once when there is space available. So I'd love to have you be able to be a part when we when we do things like that. But you'll hear about that in a minute. I think um, I had so much fun, I think you can tell, in my conversation with Blaine. And I do think like this is such a... A helpful conversation for those of us in leadership, those of us who are leading churches, those of us who are um, having other people look to us to provide some sort of direction. And I think uh, what Blaine, his journey and the way that he has been able to bring us into that offers us such... um, helpful and hopeful direction for what it looks like for us to do our own kind of work. Anyways, I think you're going to love this conversation with Blaine. All right, friends. Well, we are here with Blaine Hogan and Blaine has a new book out and uh, it's called Exit the Cave, Embracing a Life of Courage, Creativity, and Radical Imagination. So, Blaine, thanks for uh, hanging out with us today. It's Hi, to Mike. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. Um, here is your bio from the back of your book, which was different than the bio on your website. But I I thought for the crowd that listens to this, I would use your, your book bio, which says that you're a writer, film, and creative director and actor former creative director for Willow Creek. You are currently a full-time filmmaker living in Atlanta, Georgia with your wife, Margaret, and your three daughters and have a master's degree in theology and culture from the Seattle School of Psychology. And you have appeared in many stage productions and television shows. You're fancy. (laughs) You know, we just just said, let's throw it all in. Let's Let's do all of it. Well, uh, I'm a seven on the Enneagram, so uh, I can't help but be all of those random uh, things put together. But they're true. I, whether or not they're fancy, Mike, that is up to, you know, the the listener here. Um, but I feel pretty lucky that I've gotten to do all of those things. Yeah. Well, here's what I was thinking about you is that. Um, some people would be stoked to talk to you or like a little starstruck because of the role that you played in the TV show Prison Break. Some people, 
you know, would know you for your creative director role at one of the most influential churches in the country and really in the world. And they would be stoked and starstruck. Uh Uh Some Uh people because of like your directing work with people like LeBron James like that and would be like, oh, that's uh, whatever. But for me, the thing that makes me starstruck every time I talk to you is uh, because you are the creator of Happy Friday Dance Party. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I mean, go on, please. Yes, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, for people who don't know, who weren't in the know at that time, years ago, I don't even know how many years ago this was. Do you? 12 years ago. Uh-huh. 12 years ago. Yes, because I recently unearthed a, a cache of, of old videos. Okay. You did. Well, we need to get those on the internet. Okay. Um, they are, they, I did post a couple on Instagram. They were taken down because I didn't have the rights to the music. <laughs> 12 years ago, no one cared what you put uh, on the internet. Um, but yes, go ahead, please. Okay. I would like to hear well, your just description and then um, my I'll be experience. Happy to provide some color commentary. Yeah. My experience was um, so you were working at Willow at the time. And I remember, I don't know, somebody in one of my circles like reposted one of these videos that you would do on Fridays where um where like you would play a song and you would just do this like white guy straight faced dance to it and it was wonderful and i like i i used to tell people like oh i watch these with my kids which was partially true but i'm i'm mostly like i got excited every friday like do you remember um, homestar runner were you ever into homestar runner uh yes Uh uh-huh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah and that was like maybe one of the like early internet phenomenons for gen xers totally who, like of like it got released every week and like we would I like to mike one second i do i i'd like i'm 42 so i prefer to be referred to as an elder millennial so oh, yeah. i know you're a little older than me i'm um, just so... barely older than you and i'll take gen x <laughs> Okay, great. Go on. Go on. Um, So we would like in our office, we would gather around. I think it was every Monday, a new Homestar Runner would get released and we would all watch Homestar Runner together. Totally. That's how I felt for Happy Dance Fridays was like every Friday, like I would like go onto the YouTube to watch it. And the one that I remember the most was the song Dynamite. Yep. And um, that one incorporated props. Um, It had uh, some... um, some cards i think there was a confetti explosion there was i just rewatched it this morning oh my god where did you even find that uh so our mutual friend kim meyer has it on her (laughs) old blog somehow (laughs) like i was googling trying to find it and like you just searched blaine hogan happy friday dance party yeah it was something like that and uh and she had she had two posted on there that somehow survived Oh and God. I was able, and one of them was Dynamite, which was sure. my favorite one. Okay, well, so a little context. Yes, so give I us... had been, yeah, the origins of Happy Friday Dance Party. Yeah. First of all, uh, I am the inventor of TikTok dancing. I just, <laughs> it is, I, I am the godfather. Uh, no one had done it before. No one was doing just silly dances. And I did it 12 years ago. I think it was actually probably Vimeo because I somehow thought Vimeo was mm. cooler at the time than than YouTube. Um, but yes, I was a, I I uh, I had taken a job um, kind of begrudgingly as the creative director at Willow Creek Community Church, um, which you can kind of read about the story of how I got there uh, in the book. Um, nice plug. I, thanks. Yep, it's called Exit the Cave: uh, Embracing a Life of Courage, Creativity. Radical Imagination contains all my deepest, darkest secrets and is available wherever books are sold. 
Uh, Audible book will be uh, releasing shortly as well. The audio book. I um, just finished up the recording for that. So I was feeling very, um, I was feeling kind of bored in my job. Um, the routine of, of daily and weekly creativity, doing it at such a large scale, um, is, it was, there's a lot of intensity to it. Um, and, you know, we were doing like big stuff that getting people to, you know, feel deep things and have a connection with God. And um, I found myself becoming uh, really serious and kind of bored. So I realized I needed some sort of creative um, exercise to help kind of get me out of that. And I came up with ex this experiment. I would call it Happy Friday Dance Party. And every Friday, I would put on about a minute of music. I would record myself dancing. And then whatever I did, I would immediately post it to the internet. So did you, I, you didn't pre-plan the dances? No, mm -mm, okay. nothing. What I did, I planned out the time that I was going to, um, the time that I was going to record. And... Of course, I had to wait until everyone had left. So usually I recorded them like late Thursday nights. I'd be like, hey, babe, I got to stay. Got to record. Happy gotta Friday dance party. Yeah, got to work late. Got to work late. And then I just did that. And so that was literally 12 years ago. And that became this sort of uh, meme again. So I also invented memes, Mike. Um so, yeah. I mean, it's like Al Gore, Internet, Blaine Hogan, TikTok, and dancing white guy memes. So no. that's what I did. And I I, uh, I haven't done them in a long time, but I did recently unearth a bunch and started trying to post them on, actually posted them on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, but some of them got taken down because I you don't hold the rights to um, dynamite. That's so interesting. There's got to be a workaround somehow. Totally. There's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that I, you know, people will stitch videos, dance videos. So I've okay. been wondering if I don't go back and re-learn the choreography that yeah, I yeah, yeah. could teach myself. Uh, the funny thing is, it, it is very bad dancing. But I was a dance minor. It, most people don't know this. It's not in my bio. It's not in my bio. But I was a dance minor. And that is true. <laughs> statement i love so this you so may much. see some um, so if you if you are familiar with dance vocabulary those who who do know mike will see some of my moves and they're like oh, okay i see i see what he's doing there okay so to like bring it into a um not just reminiscing about something that i could sit and talk to you about forever that most of the people listening oh i thought that's all we were probably. doing today i I would be glad to just talk about Happy Dance, uh, Happy Friday Dance Party for a long time. Yeah, we want to do something else. Well, here's kind of what I'm curious about is like, did you, uh, it sounds like in retrospect, like it was an intentional decision in the moment was an intentional decision or was it almost like intuitive? Like, I feel trapped in some sort of way and I just kind of got to break out of that. Like, was that a sort of thing for you or was, was it? Like, uh, and, and you just kind of like stumbled on it, like intuitively, or was it really like, you know, I sat down and realized I'm doing this kind of job that's doing this kind of thing to me. And I need something that moves me in a different kind of way to feel like I break out of that. And so I'm going to like, which way did it sort of work for you? Yeah. I mean, it's probably a little bit of both. Honestly, okay. certainly there's some intentionality of it. We find ourselves stuck in various places 
in our lives. And what I know is, and I think I probably, to be honest, sort of like go really deep is realizing now that like my body needed to, to do some moving, like my, the somatic therapy that sort of now very much in vogue, was it something that people were talking about 12 years ago? But I look back on it and go, well, that's certainly part of it. Another part was just the silliness and ridiculousness of it. Uh, not taking myself so seriously, realizing like I needed to kind of, you know, jostle some things up. Um, and then also the kind of Seth Godin, just ship it mentality. Yes. Where there was a, I have a, my best friend right now, Jared, he has wanted to write for a long time. And, but he's not necessarily want, doesn't necessarily want to write a book. And he's like, I don't want to write a newsletter. And so he gave himself the task for the next six months, he would write a chapter a month. And for the 30 of us that he uh, chose to send it to, he goes and gets it printed. He staples it. He mails it. So every month he's shipping these little kind of missives, these chapters about his life. And it was the, it's just like that, the intentionality of going, you know, it, that this is not something that's going to be precious. I'm not going to edit it. The purpose of it is uh, both a creative experiment and a personal experiment. And so I think it's like, like I said, it's probably a, a little bit of both, but I knew something had to change. I knew I had to shake things up. And so I sh shook my hips for you, Mike, for me. Um... I love, I mean, I love the idea of like, um, when you are doing something where you're like creating for a living in some sort of way that you are creating something that is simply the purpose of it is to create mm -hmm. and not to, um, not to make it perfect, not to make it producible, just to simply like create for whoever that is going to connect with, even if it's just sort of for you. Totally. And I'll be honest, like, that's kind of how I feel about the book. Yes. I'm not my wife's the real writer in our in our house. She our first year of marriage, she went out to L.A., did a screenwriting program, went back and forth pitching various scripts. She's worked on a couple of books. She's really the editor of the book, to be to be honest, in, in a lot of ways. But when I got this contract to write this book, I thought I was going to write a book about the creative process because that was when I got the um, well, actually, Mike, do, is it, do you want to go here right now? No, this was genuinely my next question. Like, oh, okay. Here, here's here's what I've written down is that uh, I want to I'll, I'll read you word for word what I wrote Great. down. So okay. see, like I want to talk a little bit about the process of the book before we get to the book, because if I remember right, you signed a book contract to write a different book than what you ended up writing. Perfect. Mike, we're so in sync. I think it's probably because you've been watching some of my dances for so many years. Like yeah. we just have we're dance partners at this point. It's no you longer didn't know a solo it. act. Yeah, I'm like the stalker. Could you do yes. any of the moves, do you think? Well, the one that I can do is in Dynamite, you say, uh, the, the song goes like, told you once, told you twice, and you do a little thing with your hand. Yeah. Told you once, and then told you the twice. Magic like, That's the right. magic trick. <laughs> I, so I do that every time that song comes on because of that dance. And anyways, uh... I was re-showing my kids this morning the video, and I was like, hey, do you guys remember this? Because I'm talking to him today, and mm -hmm. we were watching it, and my daughter goes, that's the thing that you do. <laughs> oh I was like, God. yeah, I stole it from Blaine. Oh my gosh. You know, when, when you realize the influence you've had on people, it's humbling. 
<laughs> when you feel, when you realize the ways in which you've impacted humanity, that other dads out there are doing the, the, the one hand to two trick, uh, but only to that song is a, a gift. So you're welcome. It's a gift. It's a gift. In 2018, I got a contract for a book because I was a creative director at a megachurch and that's kind of what you did. Especially because of where I was at Willow, I was surrounded by authors. That that sort of circuit of Christian professional, Christian creative, Christian um, pastors, teaching pastors. You just wrote a book, and I, I I genuinely wanted to write a book. I believed in sort of the thoughts and thought process that I had been going through, especially over the last you know the ten or fifteen years leading up to that point. But at any rate, I pitched a book for the creative process. Only one person, I, I, I had friends who were getting multiple offers and there was bidding wars. And, um, and I was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. I can't wait to all the offers that will, will roll it. And everyone passed except one publisher. One publisher um, said, yes, I'm great. I'm so grateful that they did. Um, but I was not in any position. It was uh, to, uh, yeah. So just, just. Full disclosure, um, it was a humbling experience. So I got this book contract to write a book, uh, what I thought was going to be about the creative process, sort of the tips and tricks of things that I had learned. I'd written a self-published book called Untitled. It's like a little primer on the creative process, kind of Seth Godian. And so I got this contract and then uh, right around that time, Willow Creek fell apart. Our senior pastor was accused of all kinds of misdeeds and uh, a lot of things happened and the church fell apart. Uh, Twelve different families, the closest friends of ours moved uh, out of state, all different places. And the church that my wife and my wife had grown up at, the church that in many ways had become a safe haven for me in my addiction, a safe haven for me to process and become a, a better human and a better artist. It was all kind of crumbling. And at that time, as I started to write, I realized that I probably needed to write a different book, that what I wanted, the stories that I wanted to tell weren't necessarily about the creative process. That was certainly a a part of it. But the stories that I needed to tell were my own. And um, so I did what every professional writer does in that scenario, and they ignore their publishers emails and their agents emails for months and months at a time. I just didn't respond. I just like ghosted them. And then eventually I uh, had a meeting with my agent and there was another person on the Zoom call, someone that I hadn't recognized. And I realized very quickly that I had been bamboozled into an intervention. And Alex, who is my agent, introduced me to this very kind woman named Meredith who said, Meredith is a writing coach. And I wonder if she would be able to help you. And I was like, yes, I do need so much help. And so Meredith and I began this process where she said, forget everything that you pitched, forget the book that you sold. Start talking to me about the book that you want to write and the stories that you want to tell. And for about six months, she and I, I wrote a thousand words a day and I would send them to her every single day. And she would respond and she would give me more prompts based on kind of ideas that I had laid out. And before I knew it, I realized the story that I wanted to tell was actually my own. That's, I mean, I think one of the things that's so interesting to me about that is the, 
is um so I'm a three on the Enneagram and I think my natural proclivity would be like, this is the book that I agreed to do this. I'm just mm. going to like force myself to put that thing out. And one of the things that I loved is the idea of like, there was a thing that you agreed to do and you realize that underneath that there was something that was better that needed to come out. Yes, that, yes, that. And the thing that I had, um, created the pitch in that container of sort of Christian creative megachurch. I had left a year yeah. prior. So 2017 is when I officially left my role. We were still a part of the church in 2018 when it all fell apart. And I, I think that something that I think a lot about, and I, I, I write about in the book is grateful for it's the, the gift of rock bottom, whatever that mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Had, had that thing not fallen apart, Mike, I probably would have just done exactly that, but it had all fallen apart and it gave me a certain amount of freedom to do something different. Also, because I realized I no longer was a part of that community in that way where I then needed to think about what conferences am I going to speak at? Where am I going to promote this book? How am I going to sell it? Um, all of those sort of Practical, Christian yeah. author speaker things, I was fully released from that world and was pursuing something very much outside of that in terms of commercial filmmaking that it had freed me up to go, what do I want to, what do I really want to say? And then also what came with that was a lot of fear of like, holy shit, what, what do I want to say? And who the hell's going to, who's going to, who's going to buy this book? Who's going to, yeah. who's it for? All of a sudden the audience that I thought that I knew for sure that I was going to be going after um, was all thrown up in the air. And that has created a lot of fear, but a lot of freedom as well. Yeah. And it's still a book about producing like creativity, right? But it's like approaching it, not from a like, here's five things to do to get your creative juices going or whatever, but like from the sideways sort of way of like, recapturing your story and who you are and the honesty of that journey, like actually unearth something in you to be able to, is that a fair way of? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that the way the sort of log line that I would say the book is, it's the story of my abuse, my recovery from addiction and how a new understanding of creativity saved my life. And hmm. so along the way, I realized that the art project that uh, was going to become the greatest in my life was actually my life. And so what I started to do is I began my kind of recovery and healing process that I talk about in the book is using all of the things that I learned to do as an artist to uh, approach my work with radical imagination to approach it with courage, commitment, have to, to take risks, uh, to do it afraid. All of the things that I had used in service of making art, I then had to use in service of saving my life because I had come to a precipice where it had become kind of life or death for me. Hmm. So, um, one of the things that I remember you saying when when we first connected that you then like reiterate in the book as well is I remember you saying something to the effect of one of the things you learned from Dan Allender, who's been a mentor to you and is um and started the the school that you did your master's degree at and you said That's right. 
phenomenal for folks that don't know him. Um, that, wh where would you point people to? Like, what would be the book or whatever for like people who don't know Dan's work? Um, yeah, I would say, it's, it, especially regarding story work, a great primer for Dan is To Be Told. Hmm. And then their recent book, which is called. Hold on, Mike. Um, Redeeming Heartache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I would say Dan's new book, Redeeming Heartache, okay. is probably the 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 best. And Dan is phenomenal. I've never gotten to meet Dan, but like his work has certainly impacted me from afar. Mm. And I remember one of the things that you said that he um, said to you, or maybe in class, was something to the effect of like thinking about your the past, the present, and the future. The one thing that you can change is your past. And like, do you mind talk, talking a little bit about that? Like this was this like really, um, it, it was this idea that was so significant for me to hear and mm. really a helpful framework, I thought. Yeah. And uh, let me give you, just, I'll, I'll give people just a quick context. You, you kind of positioned my, um, my current professional resume and bio with the one that's on the back of my book. Prior to all of the things that we're talking about, I was a professional actor and was working all around the country. And um, yes, I had been on this television show uh, where let's just be honest, I was a prison bitch for three to four episodes <laughs> in prison break. Uh, so please go to Netflix, watch it. Uh, I get um, a quarter of a cent every time that you watch it. So please go ahead and do that for me and my family and our college fund for our children. But I had come to a place where basically my life was falling apart. The abuse that I had suffered as a, as a kid, the way I uh, attempted to salve those wounds was through acting out sexually. And I had a full-blown sex addiction and had come to a place where my life was coming apart. Someone had introduced me to the work of Dan Allender. And as I started reading his work, I realized he also had started a school out in Seattle. And it became clear that that was just the next right thing for me. And so I called my agent, said, I'm going to go to Seattle and take two years off to go to this seminary, which I guess it was, and uh, just go do that. And they were like, okay, we don't understand that at all. But if that's what you want to do, um, then you need to go do that. And so I ended up in Seattle. I pulled the plug of all the kind of up and to the right career stuff that was happening. Now, just also, I do need to note, this was not kind of like a Kirk Cameron sort of like thing where I just cannot be a part of the industry of Hollywood and making secular art any longer. It really was just my life was falling apart. I needed to do something different. And so I found myself in Seattle and in the class with Dan Allender. And he tells us this statement that's so unbelievably hyperbolic. He says, you can't change your future because it hasn't happened yet. You can't change your present, really, because we're in the moment of it. The easiest thing to change is your past, which is absolutely ludicrous. In fact, what I believe is like the one thing you cannot change. It's already happened. It's come and gone. And the way he described it was uh, this sort of like space-time continuum, back to the future, doc sort of moment where he says, we all, we, we, we all think of time very linear, past, present, future. But of course, the way we experience time 
is somewhat uh, inversed. It's, it isn't past, present, future. It's past, future, present. And he began to describe that whatever's happened to you in the past, you take all of those experiences, the good and oftentimes the bad, which had the most impact, and you template and imagine those things in the past will happen again in the future. And so then however you are imagining the future is how you live in the present. So he said, of course, we can't change what happened in the past. You can't go back and change the abuse. You can't change the trauma. But what you can do is modify the meaning of it. You can go back into those stories and realize that maybe you have become an unreliable narrator. And through the work of unearthing some of the particularities of your story uh, through processes of writing and uh, work with therapists and with groups of people to reflect back to you as you tell those stories, you can begin to change the past because you begin to re-narrate it differently. And so then you play that back out in sort of reverse order. All of a sudden, this past that you thought was locked and this is just what it was and this is what happened to me and it's always going to happen again. You realize, oh, maybe I've been uh, misdiagnosing the meaning of that story that I've been holding my entire life. And then all of a sudden that unlocks your imagination about what can happen in the future. And now if all of a sudden you have a new and radical imagination for what the future can hold, then you live differently in the present. And it becomes this incredibly beautiful dynamic cycle where you keep going back to stories that you thought were locked, set in stone, and you really do begin to change the past. And I think based on what you were saying earlier, that really is sort of what unlocked, that is my new understanding of creativity. Because, mm. you know, you as an artist, you try and create things that have never been before. You try and imagine new futures and new worlds, and then you try and figure out how to make them in the present day. And I realized, oh my God, I could do that with my life. Yeah. And if that happens, if that can change, what else can change? It's so good. And it's so like freeing and like full of possibilities. The idea of like the flexibility of the past is so like um, interesting and inspiring to me. And I, I was thinking a bit about like a lot of the folks that listen to this are folks who are reimagining their faith. Mm -hmm. Or they are folks who are leading churches that are trying to reimagine the church. And I'm thinking about like how significant that work is as you are working through your own faith journey and the way that yeah. you understand faith of like that you've inherited stories, you have had experiences, you have been in certain kinds of churches and things like that. And you're just trying to like push forward as opposed to like going back and reimagining that. I mean, do you mind like sharing a little bit about like what might that look like in a like a faith journey process? Yeah, that's a really great application. Um, and I think that there's probably two things at play. One, you need to break away for a time. You sort of need to be the rebellious child of like, F you, dad, I don't need that anymore. And uh, because what that's the work of differentiating. And in many ways, I did that with my life when I said, oh, I need to take two years off from my um, what I thought was going to be the only thing I ever did in my life. I needed to differentiate. That is good and healthy and holy work of leaving home and saying, I, I, I feel like there's something else out there. And then at the same time, I think that there is uh, some beauty to returning 
to the past, to returning to those old stories. I remember an example that I think of from seminary, actually, we had this professor, Dwight, and uh, yeah, he, I remember it was a class on hermeneutics. And so we were kind of going back, like, how did we come to learn the things that we have learned? And the school, it's called the Seattle School for Theology and Psychology. And so it was very progressive, uh, very kind of, in some ways, even ahead of its time for doing some of the work that has become very en vogue now where people are um, dismantling their faith and they're, you know, trying to rebuild and recreate and make different things. Um, but at any rate, I remember a student was telling a story about their old uh, Sunday school and they were doing the story of like put on the armor of God. And the kid or the the young man who's telling the story said that as a kid, he remembered the sword of, is it righteousness? Is it the sword of? Sort of, uh, you know, there's two of us here who have gone to seminary and I was going to say <laughs> sword of truth. Uh, the sword of some it, sort of biblical principle. Of goodness. So, yeah, you held the sword. And he always said as a kid, um, he imagined like never being big enough to hold the sword. And so instead he held a dagger um, and everyone in the class laughed. And I remember looking over to Dwight, our professor, Dwight Friesen was his name. And he had tears in his eyes and his face was bright red. And the um, con not contempt, the anger, the like righteous anger that he held on behalf of this, this young man's story was you will never, ever make fun of someone's faith. Their, 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 their sort of childish um, upbringing because we think that we're somehow more evolved or beyond it. And I remember that story so vividly and I think about it in relationship to this conversation right now is that we have our own like daggers of whatever fill in the blank. We can't figure it out even though we both have masters in... Um, what are those stories for you that you go back and you go, um, that I, I, I needed to distance myself. I needed to go away from home. I needed to sort of say F you dad and go back and go, what are those stories that maybe you have become an unreliable narrator? Mm -hmm. And there are some moments that are waiting to be unearthed and un and mined for goodness and kindness that you could still take with you. Now, of course, there are a lot of places that that you don't need to revisit, right? There maybe are too harmful and, and too hard. And I would also say, I'm not sure there is a story that is too hard or too harmful. Now, I'm not advocating for people just to go out there and go dig around just by themselves. I think you need to do that with trained professionals and, um, you know, with a good spiritual director or therapist. Um, but I know at least for me, I mean, I'll say it that way. For me, I, and in the book, I have tried to do this, go back to some of the darkest stories of my life and have found that there was gold in there. And the longer I ran from them, the uh, well, they were always with me anyway. And that's the thing too about stories is our body keeps the score and our body is always holding the stories. And so you may have said F you dad, but the stories come with you to wherever you're, you've gone. And so I think that there is a, a, um, a holy work of remembering yeah. to be done. 
Well, and one of the things that I found so helpful in both the way you tell, by the way, um, I think it's helpful for folks to know that like your book isn't a, uh, like here's step-by-step on this. Like it's, it's, is it fair to say it's like a memoir? It's a story. Like you're telling story. And then I'm grabbing, as I'm reading the story that I'm like, oh, I need to like, I'm grabbing these things out of it that I'm like, I need to lean into that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so around this, one of the things was uh, you talk about getting really particular in your story Mm. and moving to the particular. And I was realizing like, especially in the kinds of Christian circles that you and I have been in, what we tend towards is the generalities of stories and enough to, especially as a preacher, enough to appear vulnerable enough for people to feel like what I'm Mm. offering them is vulnerable, Mm. but not so much that like I'm actually getting in, like I'm actually um, parsing out the reality of all of what was there. Mm. And because like that was the way that I would communicate and that was the circles that I was in, that's where I would even allow, like I could stay there with my story and like what you describe at one point of your book of like, you were just telling kind of your story over and over again. It becomes this kind of like, and it resonated with that so much of like, I could tell these sort of pieces of it and, and I can miss getting into the particulars of it and I avoid getting into the particulars of it. I don't have a need to, and I'm missing like actually redeeming that story more fully. Yeah, I think certainly people who find themselves in the role of communicator or pastor or teacher, um, that that is, a, I think, a constant struggle for the part of the book that you're describing is in a practicum setting. So kind of like a small group, almost group therapy setting. I had retold a three-act structure of my story over and over again. And at one point, one of the members of my group said that they didn't believe me. And I was so upset. And I said, what do you mean? I'm telling a true story. And they're like, no, no, no. We know that you're telling a true story. Um, But what it seems that you're trying to do is tell your story in a way that it would move us. And we've already been moved and you've done it. Congratulations. You've performed your story impeccably. But what they invited me to uh, was that I might be missing out on myself being moved and changed. That if I need, if, that if I would just have the courage to enter into some of those uh, particularities, as you say, that that's the word that we use in the book, um, that maybe I could be changed rather than me being the one to, to change others, which is really challenging when that seems to be your job. Um, Also, I think it's another thing that I I think that people who are communicators wrestle with is they are trying to, if I keep it general, I'm going to kind of get the most amount of people. I'm going to attack, I'm going to kind of hit the most buckets of people. Um, And I think that from a storytelling perspective, the the opposite is true. When you speak in generalities, you get this sort of milk toast kind of situation. Everyone can kind of feel like, oh, he's just sort of scratching. He or she is just sort of scratching the surface. And they there's something more underneath them that they're not sharing, which if you are standing up and you're trying to communicate and help people attach to deeper truths of themselves, you actually owe them your story. That, that I think that there is something to be said is that you can't take someone farther than you've gone yourself. And w- when it comes to speaking generally, it, it has the opposite effect 
in terms of resonating with people. There's a great Carl Sagan quote that I always have misquoted. Uh, the accurate one is the things that are the most specific or the most personal are the most universal. So when you think about any movie that you've seen, um, you know, that you're, that you've been moved by now that doesn't template your exact experience. In fact, it's gone deep into the life of these characters and you'll have found resonance in some of those places. And I think that the stories that are told with the most particularity are the ones that have the most resonance, but it's a scary place to go, especially if you feel like if that's your job. And also I think people have been trained uh, to, to not do that. We're trained to not tell our secrets. We're trained not to um, reveal who we are um, because what would happen then? Uh, would we be met with kindness? Would we be met with me too? Would we be met with, um, you know, that feeling of being known? And it is a, it is a great risk, but I, I think as I imagine this book now being out, um, I'm terrified of that. And also I'm really excited. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I experienced that truth in reading your book where like, I don't have the same story that you do, but in you telling the particulars of your story, I could find resonance that spoke to me and I could like, I don't know, there's something for communicators about trusting people to be smart and to be adults and to be mm -hmm. able to, so there's something about like you having done your work in a way where the way that you then shared it connected with me in a way where I was then able to move that into like my own experience in life mm -hmm. and and like start making all kinds of like different sorts of connections, right? Where, I don't know, I was even thinking as you're talking now in a completely like different uh, lane, um, I'm doing a class with Richard Rohr right now on Franciscan oh spirituality. What? Well, it's not actually with Richie. Like it's like pre-recorded. It's <laughs> Richie. It's with. Is that um, what you call him? Does he let you call him that? Well, so it's not actually with him. It's so like you, he doesn't know you're it, calling him that. Yeah, it's it's his organization, the Center for Action and Contemplation. Yeah, They're doing sure. it, okay. and it's all it's stuff they put together of his work. So it's like I we watch it. his videos. And, Amazing. So uh, one of the things he talks about is Franciscan spirituality moves from the particular to the universal, and yes. that he talks about the idea that in uh, theology we're often trying to move from the universal to the particular, and that's why we create exclusive ideas around God. Uh, is that when you're when you're starting with a universal idea, it's abstract, and you're trying to figure out what fits in that abstraction and what doesn't fit in that abstraction. Sure. But if, if you start with a particular, so he would argue like you can only make sense of God through Jesus. So if you start with the particular of here's the incarnation of the divine being put on display, and that's how it, then you universalize out of that, it's always going to be a more inclusive move. Wow. Um, there's always room, like... It's super fascinating to me to think about the idea that particularity invites more in than universality, than trying to be universal does. Yep. 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 A thousand percent. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I feel like, you know, as I, it makes me think, well, back to being with you and with Rob. Um, so did you want to talk about that? Was that? Yeah. 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 You're... Yeah. You're great. Um, we, so. Yeah, well, go ahead. What were you going to say, Mike? Well, I was just going to give folks a quick, like, yeah, go a, ahead. a small yeah. group of us gathered with 
uh, a friend, like our mutual friend Steve Carter and I put together a small gathering where there was, I think, 10 of us uh, with Rob Bell for a day. And then 10 of us hung out after that to kind of like debrief and process. And and the original idea was like, bring content that you're working on and like sit with Rob and we're all going to listen in as each person unpacks their content with Rob and he asks questions. And it turned into some of that, some life coaching, some like, yeah. So, yeah. So I brought the book. Um, I was kind of at a um, kind of tipping point of where the book was going to go and how I should sort of finish it. And so I sat kind of talking about the book and I remember uh, two things very distinctly. Rob said, you know, when people ask me as I'm working on a book or starting with the idea for a book, they ask me, well, who's it for? He says, well, I have no idea. I don't know who's going to, it's going to be whoever it's for. And uh, I love that idea. I also think Rob has heard, you know, he's got people. He knows who he's writing for in a way. Um, (laughs) And yet the truth remains. It's going to be whoever it's for. And again, like as I mentioned earlier, because I had felt freed up from that sort of circuit, like I need to figure out what my second, third, fourth book is, how I'm going to pitch this to another publisher, how I'm going to get on the speaking circuit, et cetera, all that had been removed. And so that gave me an enormous amount of freedom. And then the next day, as you mentioned, we kind of all reconvened with Rob not being there. And I started asking more questions about the book and everyone is incredibly helpful. And they were like, Oh, did you change the title and we could, you should do this and uh, all sorts of, you know, messing around with, with what it was. And I left that uh, time together feeling really inspired and really kind of shook like, Oh no, like I'm gonna have to change all of this. And then I got back and I kind of settled down and I write this in the acknowledgement that uh, I took uh, approximately zero of your feedback. We also coined <laughs> our group name, and I can't remember what. How did the the name we we have been re- lovingly referred to as the Nugs of Beverly Hills, which is where we were doing this meeting? But do you remember why the Nugs? Yeah, came? there was one of the guys named Seth. He kind of went first with Rob. And he talked about an encounter that he had with somebody who was dropping nugs of wisdom. Oh, nugs of wisdom. Yes. Nugs, nugs became the thing. Okay. So that's, that stuck out. So in the acknowledgements, if you do buy the book and you go to the very end, uh, even if you just buy the book and just flip to the end, you'll see. <laughs> I'll sign the end. That's where <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll do so, that for people. And so there's uh, an acknowledgement to the nugs of Beverly Hills. And essentially it's me saying to Mike and all the others that were there, I took it approximately zero of your feedback (laughs) but you gave me something much greater and it was the courage to keep going and the courage to finish and so to that for that i'm i'm incredibly grateful i love that i do like one of the things i was super intrigued by because of that was having been in that experience with you where i mean i feel like it was universally everybody saying like Hey, change the main metaphor of the book, change, kind of get rid of this like one story that's so meaningful to you that yeah, like the, isn't the hel- title of the book, the cave, the exit, the cave, the whole cave story. They're like, you don't need it. Yeah, yeah. Which is based around Plato's uh cave analogy that he uses. That's right. And um, and so like I think universally everybody was like, I don't think that's helpful for you. It's not driving the narrative. I think you're too attached to it, it means too much to you, you need to get rid of it. And then um, you send out the book and it's called Exit the Cave. And the cave is such a, and 
So, but here's what was super interesting to me was the idea of having something that was so deeply meaningful to you while simultaneously being open to receive criticism and feedback and then sitting with that. And like what you decided to do at the end was kind of like, F you guys, you don't know what you're talking about. There's something like I need to put this thing out. But that those two things would sit in tension together because I think Mm -hmm. my experience of people is often uh, a movement towards one or the other. Mm-hmm. That I have this thing that I'm gonna do, and I don't need to listen to anybody else. Like I just I know what I need to do. And then there's the like I'm receiving so much feedback that I you know what's the old like thing that you say that like you were a committee that built a camel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. That it's like it, you're getting so much feedback that you're like trying to respond to all of that. And I there's something for me that was really beautiful about whatever what it was within you that was able to bring those two things together. And and have a conviction around what you wanted to create that was also open for criticism and feedback. Is that a question, Mike? It, well, it's like a setup. Yeah. It's like a. I. It's like so, a. Yes. Here, okay. Yeah, here's yeah, a platter. No, yep. I'm being snarky, um, which is I think something I I learned as part of this process. I think first thought is art is always intention with consumerism with creativity with you know what what with what you want to say with what who's going to hear it with um commercial i mean all of that so i just i that just feels like a disclaimer all art feels like it's intention and for me i have worked to try and rather than eliminate the tension embrace it and then also i think my life my sort of weird life experience has put me on various like lots of diverse realms of creativity in lots of different roles so uh at, before I, I had gone to seminary and ended up working for a mega church i was an actor and a stage director i was putting up weird kafka performance art pieces in alleyways where people were rappelling down from buildings and um i was I, I I helped to produce and then star in uh, this one man rock musical about a German transsexual rock star in which I played Hedwig, the name of the the role. Um, and then uh, then I moved into seminary and then into a, a very corporate creative setting of a megachurch where there's tons of committee and there's tons of feedback and there are tons of uh, just all of that. And the work is every week you're, 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 what you make is being evaluated again and again and again. And sometimes I got to make the thing that I, that I dreamt up and no one touched it and it was amazing. And sometimes the thing that I'd been making in the basement for, you know, a year and a half got completely neutered and all of the heart got taken out of it. And then now I'm a commercial filmmaker where it's a lot of the same, you know, a lot of my ideas, ideas make it. And some days I'm directing like really, fun edgy cool stuff with lebron james and then uh this last week i directed a regional grocery store commercial with a dancing chicken mascot in it mike (laughs) while at the same time i'm trying to produce um a short film that's about the story of my my dad and i and our um, mutual addictions and Hmm. how we the sort of this poet this visual poem 
about what it looks like to live and be live with and be an addict. Um, and so I, I think what I've learned is to hold all of that intention. So then when it came down to, to the book, uh, and, and I think a lot of encouragement from my wife and other, other people, other friends to go, just when you get quiet, what is it that you want to say? When you get quiet, and you're not thinking about the audience and you're just thinking about the story that you feel like is right there that you that you can't do anything else until you get that out of you and you just do that um and again I, i'm a i'm in a really lucky position where this book doesn't matter to me i mean okay i want i oh do i want a new york times bestseller do i want to become the next donald miller do i want this to be my blue like jazz or uh you know um of course I want it to be successful. Um, but when I'm quiet, what I really want is to have been able to say, I told the truth as, as well as I could do it. And my hope is that in telling my truth, that it might give someone else the freedom to do the same. And I think that's at its core, probably all great art. And that is always intention. Mm. <sighs> Frick. Blaine, this has been so good. It's such I've loved this. A gift. Oh, such a gift. Thank you. Genuinely. Same. Um, all right, friends. The book is called Exit the Cave, Embracing a Life of Courage, Creativity, and Radical Imagination. It releases November 8th which um is that that's election day too right yeah i'm in i'm in i'm in competition with the midterms but i feel pretty confident um that most people will be talking about this book on tuesday november 8th i feel like if you have to choose between like where you're going to give your time and attention to this is a much more redemptive experience a hundred percent now i also live in georgia now um so there's it's a big deal yeah, it's a lot going on. So like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Kamala Harris, they're like all coming to my book launch party on November 8th. They've canceled all of their um, their events for the day and they're going to come um, hang out. Yeah. And only you could bring those two women together. So I feel like that's really beautiful. As I said, uh, all art is held in tension, Mike. <laughs> So uh, where do people find you on the internets so they can try and, uh, you know, not only pay attention to you, but, you know, get little glimpses of happy Friday dance party. Sure. Yep. Uh, on Instagram, I'm at Blaine Hogan on TikTok at Blaine Hogan underscore. I'll do it again uh, on TikTok at Blaine Hogan underscore director. And then you can read more about the book at exitthecavebook.com. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks for being here. Oh, my gosh, Mike. Thank you.